the cancer cells seem to grow very well in in this tumor microenvironment. So not only can they withstand um, acidic conditions, um, but they also grow much faster under lower oxygen conditions. So the amount of oxygen in the air we breathe um, is 21%. That means 21% of our atmosphere is made up of oxygen. In our tissues, it's much lower than that. It can be as low as 7% or 5%. Even in the center of some tissues, it can go down to 1%. And that's in a healthy state. It's in a healthy state, yes. Um, center of bone marrow can go mm -hmm. as low as 1%. Uh, welcome back, Dr. Romore. How are you doing today? Good, good. We wanted to have the main focus of this uh, episode to be on the hallmarks of cancer. Uh, there are plenty of future episodes that are that I'm planning out to have uh, more research that surrounds cancer because I think it's a really large topic, very complex. And I thought that it might be a good idea to talk about uh, the different hallmarks or the different, mm -hmm. um, the different ways by which cancer can really become this overwhelming disease in many cases. First of all, thanks for inviting me here today. Oh, anytime, uh, welcome back. <laughs> I appreciate it. And um, yeah, today's topic is the hallmarks of cancer. So <clears throat> I think everyone knows someone who has had cancer in the past and has been affected by cancer. And they know how devastating a disease it can be. And um, so there's a lot of research done on cancer. And uh, the reason for that is that there's so many different causes of cancer that it's hard to nail down one specific cause of cancer in general. Uh, first off, there's many different cancers. And second, the causes of each of those cancers are multitude. And so that's why they decided to come up with the hallmarks of cancer. So the hallmarks of cancer are based on three papers. And the first one was actually published in the year 2000. And there's two authors on it, uh, Douglas Hanahan and Robert Weinberg. And this was published in a journal called Cell uh, in 2000. And it was just entitled The Hallmarks of Cancer. And so they decided to come up with some key features that distinguishes a cancer cell from a normal cell. And in 2000, when they published their first paper, they came up with six. So there was six um, key features or six hallmarks, they, they called them, of cancer. And then they published two other papers, almost 11 years apart each. So the second one was in 2011. Uh, the same two authors, Douglas Hanahan and Robert Weinberg. And this one was entitled The Hallmarks of Cancer, The Next Generation. And to that, they added four more uh, hallmarks onto the original six. So then they had 10 hallmarks. So <clears throat> the third paper came out recently. It's uh, 2022. And it just has the single author, Douglas Hanahan, on it. Um, and this one was entitled uh, The Hallmarks of Cancer, uh, New Dimensions. And they published it in a, a different journal. They, they published it in Cancer Discovery. 
and they added four more uh, hallmarks to the, the wheel of the hallmarks of cancer. So if anyone has seen this, this wheel, um, they would be able to see all the different hallmarks that are featured in these three papers. And really the subsequent papers only talk about the new hallmarks. Uh, they don't talk about the original ones outlined in the, in the first paper. <clears throat> so there's 14 now uh, features or hallmarks of, of cancer or how you recognize a cancer cell uh, compared to a normal cell. So, um, <clears throat> and these are various types of features that distinguish them. And uh, so to list them off, uh, one is sustained proliferative signaling. The second is evading growth suppressors. The third is um, resisting cell death. The fourth is enabling replicative immortality. Uh, the fifth is inducing and accessing vasculature. And the sixth um, is activating invasion and metastasis. And so these were the original six that were published in 2000. To that, they added uh, deregulating cellular metabolism, genome instability and mutation, uh, tumor-promoting inflammation, and avoiding immune destruction. And those were introduced in 2011 in the second paper. So finally, in 2022, uh, they added four more, which was unlocking phenotypic plasticity, non-mutational epigenetic reprogramming, uh, polymorphic microbiomes, and senescent cells. So, um, and of course that makes it a very broad topic, um, but we can talk about specific hallmarks um, in this episode. So we'll start off by, did you want to start off with the first one? Because I have sure. a, a different list maybe, or a different orientation <laughs> of the list that you might have. Probably. Uh, the first thing I have is sustaining proliferative, proliferative signaling. signaling. So, so they can proliferate uh, in a very different way than healthy cells can. Yes. And so we can start talking about that first. Yeah, so this, uh, this refers to the ability of the cancer cell to activate signaling pathways that uh, um, basically tend towards growth and um, um, division. So when a cell is in its premature stage, it has an active uh, division cycle, um, the growth cycle. And so this has a number of different steps, but it keeps the cell actively dividing and um, in sort of a stem-like state, uh, stem cells, for example. And so this stemness is allowing the cell to continuously going, going through the growth cycle and never really maturing into its final form, uh, which is what we call differentiation. And so the stem cells show this capability, but also cancer cells show this as well. And the way that uh, the cancer cell does this is that it constantly activates signaling pathways, which promote uh, growth and division. So it's like a cell that never really matures into its final form. So if you have a stem cell in the liver, eventually it's going to become a differentiated liver cell. 
if you have uh, a cell in the muscle, it's eventually going to differentiate into a muscle cell. So the cancer cell continues to, to grow and divide, and this is what promotes tumor genesis in this case. So it's constantly dividing, it's constantly activating those signals that promote growth and destruction, and it's continuously growing, going through the growth cycle. The, the second part that, uh, that is quite concerning is how it's able to evade growth suppressors. So mm -hmm. there are normal um, uh, suppression factors that are present in healthy cells that can prevent them from overgrowing, yep. and cancer cells can somehow evade those. Right, right. So some of these uh, growth suppressors are also called tumor suppressor proteins. Mm -hmm. And uh, some of the, the primary examples of these are two proteins like retinoblastoma protein is one example. And another one is the human tumor suppressor P53 protein. Mm. So these um, allow the cell to um, eventually differentiate, but also they, they trigger a cell death mechanism called apoptosis. And this is a natural death mechanism by cells, and it's necessary for tissues to grow and fully become mature. So as we're growing, uh, we have stem cells that um, proliferate. They're directed by extracellular signals to become one specific cell type. Yeah. And then eventually, uh, cells that are no longer needed in the tissue, that are more beneficial to the fetus as opposed to the adult, undergo apoptosis and um, basically commit suicide. So right. they, it's, a, it's a controlled cell death. Um, the cancer cells evade all of these, and often it's due to mutations in these tumor suppressor proteins, um, the primary example being P53. Uh, and so the cell, the cancer cell, then evades apoptosis or this natural cell death that uh, is a natural process for cells to undergo. But the, the cancer cell bypasses that, so it continuously divides and continuously um, maintains its growth. And so is there an understanding of how they bypass this? Is it Do, the, do these mutations... Um... Are these inflicted by cancer cells? Like, do they have the ability to enforce mutations in order to enable to enable them enable them to survive further, or is it that those mutations happen as a result of this um, constant replication of cells, and then it kind of happens inadvertently uh, as an error during replication? Um, sometimes these are due to errors in in replication. Often, it can also be caused by mutagens, so chemicals that can cause. Um, changes in the DNA, uh, changes, damage to the DNA, uh, single strand and double strand breaks, but also base modifications. Uh, and these are, are, may become permanent mutations mm -hmm. in, the, in the genome. And I, I imagine they're carried over after the cell replicates, it carries over those mutations to the next set of cells that will be replicating. And so you can get this additive effect of them being also um, evasive to apoptosis. Right. Right. Or, or they can resist apoptosis. Yeah, this gets into a few of the other hallmarks um, of cancer, which includes genome instability and mutation. Mm -hmm. 
And so um, the cell has a way of editing its own DNA. And so if it finds an error or if it finds damage, generally it cuts that piece of DNA out and it replaces it with good DNA. Um, The cancer cell has a tendency to accumulate mutations. Mm -hmm. And so this makes the genome very unstable. It also produces mutant proteins, which tend to build up. And um, so cancer cells tend to suppress the genome maintenance system, this quality control system that checks the DNA, see if the, the building blocks of DNA are, are correct or if they, there's no damage to them. And then it excises them, it cuts them out, and then it replaces it, them with, with good DNA building blocks. I imagine the idea behind that is because if they start, if the, if they're allowed to, for the cells to start repairing these mutations, then cancer cells will no longer have these evasive effects and, and these kind of um, uh, signaling pathways that they're able to evade uh, proliferation or sorry, evade um, growth suppressors. Yep. And then they're not able to continue to proliferate as they normally do. Yes, and it also um, bypasses apoptosis, so it keeps the cells continuously growing, continuously dividing. Mm-hmm. Um, it also bypasses differentiation. Um, differentiation causes the cell to mature and to stop dividing and, and stop proliferating, stop growing. Um, so genome instability can have a number of different effects, and the mutations can cause this. There is another hallmark where they talk about enabling replicative immortality. So really making the cells uh, immortal. So, so how are cancer cells able, capable of becoming immortal? I mean, in, in addition to them replicating indefinitely. So, um, there's actually a natural aging process in cells. And if you're growing cells in culture, you can only grow them for so long. Eventually, they reach a point where they age and they senesce. So just like people. And senesce means that they're no longer capable of growing? They're no longer capable of growing or proliferating or dividing. And that's the key thing. Mm -hmm. And so this was termed the Hayflick limit. And in cell culture, there is a limit to the number of times you can cause a cell to divide even if it's an immortal cell line. Um, Eventually they reach a limit where they stop dividing, they stop proliferating, and eventually they die off. And this is known as the Hayflick limit. In in many cell cultures, it's between 50 and 60 divisions. Wouldn't that innately make them non-immortal cells? Yes, um, in, in terms, when I term when I give the term immortal, um, I'm talking either about a cancer cell or a cell that's being transformed mm-hmm. in a way that becomes immortal. Ah, okay, so, so ones that are immortal, does the Hayflick limit still apply to which they're capable of uh, replicating past that limit? Or once they're immortal, they can just replicate indefinitely? For cancer cells, it seems to, they seem to bypass the Hayflick limit mm-hmm. and they can replicate um almost indefinitely um for transformed cells they do have a limit could you tell us what 
the difference is in transformed cell lines? Transformed cell lines is where the um, the growth cycle, so this cycle that cells go through in, in order to continuously divide, um, has been messed up in a way uh, due to uh, a manipulation. And so they they continuously divide, but they don't form tumors and they don't form they don't show any of the cancer markers that are present on cancer cells, which enable cancer cells to metastasize and um, uh, have other features that are are evading, say, the immune system. Uh, the transformed cells cannot do that. So if they were injected into a mouse, they would not form a tumor. Uh, when you say transformed cells, are those transformed by action of human manipulation or are they transformed uh, by inadvertent mutations? They're generally transformed by um, human manipulation. Okay. So this so, is mainly for purpose of using cell culture in labs? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Sometimes in order to obtain gene expression, um, you have to put that gene in with into the cell with a, a virus. And sometimes parts of the viral genome get incorporated into the chromosomes of the cells, which um, cause the growth cycle to be messed up, and then they become transformed. So they continuously divide, and they never really differentiate. But they're not considered to be a cancer cell because they don't have the cancer markers. They can't metastasize. They can't form tumors. Um, and so they, and they can't evade the, the uh, immune system. So they're not a cancer cell, but they act like one. And there is a limit to the, the number of times they can divide. So, uh, Can transformed cell lines induce angiogenesis like cancer cells can? Generally, generally not, no. Um, the cancer cells promote angiogenesis, which is the formation of new blood vessels. Um, by secreting specific factors. And so when you have a tumor that's growing, um, it needs to be oxygenated, and that requires blood vessels to infiltrate the tumor itself and to uh, oxygenate the parts of the tumor and the cancer cells so that they can continue to grow. So the cancer cells secrete a factor called uh, vascular endothelial growth factor, or VEGF for short. Um, and that's used uh, by the cells that line blood vessels to grow and divide. Uh, it um, tends to bind to the very tips of very small capillaries and it causes those capillaries to split and to form new capillaries. Mm -hmm. So you have this branching effect of blood vessels um, when they're subjected to VEGF. And the cancer cells, certain cancer cells can secrete uh, VEGF uh, quite well, whereas a transformed cell generally does not. It really depends on the cell type. Okay. Um, and so the blood vessel, the, the cells that line the blood vessel walls also secrete cytokines and growth factors, which the cancer cells can use. So it's, it's kind of 
uh, a vicious cycle where you have the cancer cells feeding the blood vessel cells and the blood vessel cells feeding the cancer cells. So therefore you get growth of the tumor itself. I mean, um, what's the likelihood of being able to deliver chemotherapeutic agents that are more cancer specific through the blood because that's how cancer cells can uh, provide sustenance for themselves because there's a direct method of, of them of accessing the blood. Right. So there have been um, attempts at those types of therapeutics. In fact, ones that also target VEGF. So if you can starve a cancer cell of blood vessels, you starve it of oxygen, and then that will start to cause cell death within the tumor. The center of the tumor has so many cells and they're so packly, uh, tight, tightly packed that blood vessels have a hard time getting into the center of tumors. Mm -hmm. So the, the center of tumors can be quite, have quite low oxygen in them. And it's very hard for blood vessels to infiltrate to the center of very solid tumors. So in the centers, you actually do get cell death. Mm -hmm. um, it can become rather necrotic in the center of solid tumors where you have high cell death because the cancer cells are not getting the oxygen that they require. And so how do they mitigate that kind of uh, necrotic death? Is it by just making more cells? Mostly making more cells, and that's on the outer surface of the tumors. Mm -hmm. So where it is highly vascularized right, okay. and have large number of blood vessels. So let's say you do starve out the cells from VGEF um, or VEGF to prevent cells from producing more, but cancer cells, I should say specifically, from producing more blood vessels. If you were to do that, is that factor, that same blood vessel growth factor shared by healthy cells? Because are we starving both of them at this point? Um, <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's possible. But with the tumors, you have rapidly growing blood vessels. So you have blood vessels being formed that are trying to infiltrate the tumor to the central portions of it. And so with VEGF, it won't affect pre-existing blood vessels. Um, oh, I see. It would affect, I guess, the formation of new capillaries in different areas outside of the cancer. But in general, most of those blood vessels are already formed and they're not differentiating or not splitting quite as rapidly as they are around the tumor. Get the word. Uh, are they trying to make new blood vessels? What's the turnover rate is, I guess, what I'm trying to go for, I guess, the, the, the turnover rate uh, of formation of blood vessels, because uh, surely those vessels aren't surviving uh, from, the per from the time that the person is born until their death. So uh, there has to be some sort of time limit at which at the point that the blood vessels have expired, then you come kind, of, kind of come in with new ones. Right. And I think that that's a, an ongoing process mm -hmm. with, with most tissues. Um, it just simply occurs faster with the cancer cells. Right, right. So a lot of the cancer treatments there take advantage of the fact that um, cancer cells are rapidly growing cells. And some of the treatments do target normal cells, but the normal cells are not growing, dividing as rapidly as the cancer cells, and they don't maintain the stemness that cancer cells do. 
So if you can target the ability of the cancer of cells to divide rapidly, that's what most of the cancer treatments out there are, are attempting to do mm. in terms of many of the chemotherapeutics as well. Imagine even with uh, the new advances in the types of treatments like uh, antibody treatments or mRNA vaccines that are being developed for targeting cancer cells, uh, the main the main challenge has and probably will always be that trying to specifically target cancer cells and deliver the therapeutic uh, um, drug specifically only to them and not anything else, somehow avoiding every single other healthy cell because any side effects tend to arise from, or many side effects tend to arise from off-target toxicity, yes. you know, trying killing healthy cells and then uh, much like chemotherapeutics that cause... Uh, many, loss. many different side effects. Yeah, many yeah. side effects. Um, yeah, it's not targeting only the cancer cells. Mm -hmm. You you have targeted effects on normal cells as well. And uh, one thing you're quite experienced in is the hypoxic effect in the cancer in the uh, tumor cell environment. Um, it's also quite acidic in there, right? And I imagine that's that can pose a challenge to delivering therapeutics into that region. Yes, but it can also provide an advantage mm -hmm. as well. Um, because the tumor microenvironment, we call it, um, is not only has low oxygen, so there's lots of what we call hypoxic effects, um, there's also a lot of acidic effects as well. So one of the things that <clears throat> the cancer cell takes advantage of is that it, it alters its metabolism. And that again gets into another one of the hallmarks that is different from the beginning six um, is altered uh, cell metabolism. And uh, often it's deregulated. So one of the hallmarks is called deregulated cellular metabolism. And this gets into something called the Warburg effect, which is um, one particular biochemical pathway named glycolysis. Glycolysis is the metabolism of glucose to pyruvate, and pyruvate is used to produce energy. Our energy in our cells is ATP. And um, generally, this is a pathway that operates very well under low oxygen conditions. Um, but in a cancer cell, it's going full force, even though there's lots of oxygen present. So, and but the end of the pathway is blocked, so it's not necessarily pyruvate that you're producing, it's uh, lactate. Mm -hmm. And so, lactate uh, is generally in the form of lactic acid, and that gets kicked out of the cancer cell and it um, drops the pH in the environment that the cancer cell is in. So it's an acid, so it, it uh, lowers the pH. So you have the buildup of lactic acid. Um, generally, lactic acid is shuttled off to the liver and it's recycled back to glucose. But <clears throat> in a tumor, that may not be always possible. So you have a buildup of lactic acid and that is what drops the pH. Is it that it's more concentrated as well in around the tumor microenvironment? Yeah. That it 
perhaps even if there is some sort of shuttling to the liver, it cannot handle the excessive production of lactic acid. Would that be the case? That might be the case. The lactic acid does eventually make it to the bloodstream and it does make it back to the liver. Mm -hmm. But the process of converting it back to glucose, which is um, another biochemical pathway called gluconeogenesis, is a slow one. And it takes energy, I imagine, too. And it takes energy and it takes time. It takes a lot of energy. Yeah. So, um, so you have the buildup of lactic acid, particularly in the centers of solid tumors. Mm -hmm. um, it can get very acidic, and that has an effect on everything that functions within that environment, including yeah. whole cells. But also macromolecules have to be able to function in an acidic environment in that case. And so, well. how does it uh, how does it take advantage? In addition to what you mentioned, how does it how can it take advantage of that acidic environment? How does it um, so capable of? If you had therapeutics that worked preferentially in acidic environments, that may preferentially target tumor environments mm -hmm. like the tum tumor microenvironment, yeah. which does tend to be uh, acidic. So, many drug therapies um, have a container, and the container is goes in and it releases a, a drug to a target area um, if you could engineer that to uh, release the drug under very acidic conditions you might be able to take advantage of that to try and target the tumor in this case and so then what are cancer cells benefit of having this microenvironment this highly acidic uh, microenvironment surrounding it the cancer cells seem to grow very well in in this tumor microenvironment. So not only can they withstand um, acidic conditions, um, but they also grow much faster under lower oxygen conditions. So the amount of oxygen in the air we breathe um, is 21%. That means 21% of our atmosphere is made up of oxygen. In our tissues, it's much lower than that. It can be as low as 7% or 5%. Even in the center of some tissues, it can go down to 1%. And that's in a healthy state. It's in a healthy state, yes. Um, center of bone marrow can go mm -hmm. as low as 1%. Um, and certainly the center of tumors uh, can get as low as 1%. Um, but cancer cells seem to thrive in that. Um, because they're relying on glycolysis, this one pathway that I mentioned before, um, glycolysis does produce energy, but it doesn't produce as much energy as the pathways that require oxygen. Mm -hmm. And those pathways are generally shut down. So they need to maintain those pathways because they're essential for producing ATP. So what the cancer cell does is that it takes in an amino acid called glutamine. And glutamine is converted to glutamate in the cancer cell, which is then converted to a compound called alpha-ketoglutarate, which goes into the energy production cycle. Mm. So that's part of the Warburg effect. So not only do you have runaway glycolysis occurring, which is an anaerobic or low oxygen biochemical pathway, but you also have these bypass mechanisms where the cancer cell takes in glutamine and can bypass some of the blockages that a normal cell uh, doesn't have in terms of energy production, um, in terms of producing ATP. 
Okay, so it's it's quite important for it to have those um, capabilities. Then, and uh, how does it evade immune destruction? So, so I, we'll definitely inadvertently get into more of the six because I think they're all interlapping, which is kind of the point. Yes. And that's 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 fantastic. That's great for uh, for a discussion because it kind of shows how interlinked these different hallmarks are with one another. Mm-hmm. And it shows how the progression of discovering these different pathways has kind of take us on a journey for, for the last 20 years. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I'm curious how they're, how they can, there's clearly actually one more thing I want to talk about before that was inflammation because right. getting to avoiding immune destruction. Um, I wanted to kind of pave the road with a few different uh, hallmarks because inflammation is a key. Um, it's a key step of immune function as right. I understand. Right. And so if you have this uh, center mass that has great inflammation surrounding it due to low oxygen, as you've mentioned, uh, due to a high or low pH, so high mm-hmm. acidic uh, high acidic rate in that region. Yeah. And then now adding to it, this causes a lot of inflammation. Yeah. So uh, is the inflammation caused because of those different factors or is it due to something else? Well, the... <clears throat> The inflammation that's associated with cancer is called tumor-associated inflammation. Mm-hmm. So it does have a very specific name. And um, <clears throat> when a, a cell goes wrong, the immune system can actually recognize that and um, start to push that cell towards cell death. What the cancer cell does is that it evades the immune surveillance system so it has molecules on the outside that can fool the immune system to uh, bypass it or think it's a normal cell. Mm-hmm. So you have <clears throat> evasion of uh, the immune cells not being able to recognize the cancer cell as a cancer cell. And so <clears throat> there's tumor-specific T cells that have to discriminate between tumor cells and normal cells and try to push the tumor cells towards destruction. But the tumor cells are very, very good at evading those surveillance systems of the T cells and um, preventing them from recognizing them and pushing them towards cell death. Under inflammation, you probably have this region that is bright red and then everything around it is kind of less inflamed in, in the healthier regions and i find it quite surprising that the immune system is not capable of recognizing that there's clearly something wrong in this region here with with going on with massive amounts of inflammation low oxygen and um and an acidic nature that we've discussed there is one in terms of um talking about differentiation of cells so i mentioned that um differentiation of cells is a way that a stem cell can become a mature cell. Mm -hmm. Whether it becomes a mature brain cell or a mature muscle cell or a mature liver cell, certain extracellular signals come in and push it towards one lineage of cell or another. And that gets into another hallmark of cancer, um, which is termed unlocking phenotypic plasticity. It's one of the new ones. Um, in the most recent 2022 paper. And so um, normal differentiation in cells is where a 
a cell goes from a progenitor cell or a stem cell to a mature cell. So this is the step that we call differentiation. In a cancer cell, you could have the potential for it to go backwards from a mature cell to a progenitor cell, and this is called de-differentiation. Mm -hmm. So um, certain cancers can cause the cell to go back to its state of stemness. I kind of compare stem cells sometimes to cancer cells, although I know they're, they're very different, um, because there's some common features between them. Um, this constant proliferation and growth is one. Um, reaching a state of differentiation is something that they don't achieve until the proper signal comes in. And the stem cells grow much better under low oxygen conditions than under high oxygen conditions. Mm -hmm. So low oxygen conditions is conducive for stem cell growth. And those that do stem cell research grow stem cells under low oxygen. So you can have the cancer cell moving backwards, and this is called de-differentiation. Um, you can also have blocked differentiation in a cancer cell. So this, is, this keeps it immortal, and this keeps it in the, in the growth cycle. So the uh, cells are blocked from becoming fully differentiated, so they're frozen in their progenitor state. Mm -hmm. And um, this may be due to mutation, it may be due to other factors, but they stay in their stem cell-like state. Then there's also transdifferentiation. So you could have one cell that is destined to become a liver cell, and in the cancer cell, it's switched to becoming something else, a different type of cell. Uh, so this is called transdifferentiation. Does this happen when the cell, when the cancer cell is dividing? in its normal uh, pathway or does it happen uh, it, so i'm just trying to understand when does that switch occur like at what stage of cancer development that switch is occurring mm -hmm. at it may be due to a switch in signaling mm -hmm. but it also <clears throat> may be due to um, a mutation that causes it to <clears throat> differentiate into a different tissue type okay so <clears throat> say a, a liver cell in a in a in a lung say so it's something different so it it's differentiating into a different cell type within the same tissue and that happens as the cancer cells are developing or that as, happens as they're developing as they're developing yeah. okay so that kind of gets into another hallmark of cancer and and that's one of the new ones um, that's termed unlocking phenotypic plasticity mm -hmm. So it has certain plasticity in its phenotype. So it can, you know, move forward to become a mature cell or it can move backward to become a premature cell or a progenitor cell. Or it could become a totally different cell in the tissue from what it was destined to become in the beginning. When you say from what it was destined to become in the beginning, we're talking about the after proliferation of the cancer cells, right? Yeah. And so what's the advantage of this? Is this how it evade or is this how it is capable of metastasizing? It uh, keeps it in a an undifferentiated state um often um it could cause proliferation of one particular cell type in a tissue that it's not supposed to be in mm -hmm. which could result in a tumor forming. 
And a lot of it depends upon the signals that it's getting from the outside and how those signals get messed up in a cancer cell. Okay. Starting to really see how and why treating cancer has been quite difficult. And uh, even with all the successes and um, uh, with all the different treatments that we have out now, it's becoming more and more clear to me why there's still a, a huge industry for developing treatments for cancer because it's just very there are too many problems to tackle there are too many uh, um, states that cancer can take in order for it to overcome one treatment and that's that's mm -hmm. probably one of the the main issues is that treatments tend to target maybe one or a few minor things and then but cancer has a broad range of tools it can use in order to proliferate and and, and uh, evade the immune system and metastasize into neighboring regions which yeah. which leads me to the next point metastasis which is probably mm -hmm. one of the um, later stages and most devastating ones mm -hmm. as it starts to get into neighboring tissue right now it's no longer a problem of removing a localized tissue uh, of, of a collection of cancer cells now it becomes a problem of having to uh, mitigate it from moving around into various uh, tissue metastasis is a big problem there is, um, this is where you could get, um, you know, uh, a tumor from the lung in another tissue, say the liver. Mm -hmm. um, and really you need a biopsy of that tumor in order to determine where the cells come from. So if you discover a tumor in a patient, um, one of the automatic things is to take a biopsy of that uh, tumor determine the cell type or the cell that it's originating from, which may suggest that there is a second tumor somewhere within the patient originating um, within that tissue where that cell comes from. So they do checks in terms of cell types because you can get cells from one tissue forming a tumor in another, and that's uh, metastasis. Do you know the method by which they use to, uh, let's say, like you were mentioning earlier, they does someone discovers a cancerous tumor in uh, liver of a patient, and then they take a biopsy, they realize that these are actually lung cells. So what is the process by which they can discover this? They look for certain markers for certain cell types, mm -hmm. and then that's where they can tell what what tissue that cell originated from, even though it's a cancer cell. Right. Okay. I guess those markers tend to be indicative of that one cell type. Yes. Like that's lung right. epithelial tissue or something like that. And then, so, oh, yes, that this came from the lung. Yeah. And, and, and so, so then they have to check other tissues for tumors. I see. Okay. So if it did come from the lung, you would start to look for tumors in the lung um, because they must have come from somewhere. Right. And that it highly suggests that there are other tumors within that origin tissue that are present within the patient. So to get back to the metastasis, there's a lot of changes that need to occur um, in a tumor cell before it metastasizes. So it has to, um, you know, invade the blood vessels and then it has to uh, exit those blood vessels from the circulation and colonize the new tissue. And so there's often a term called epithelial mesenchymal transition, which um, is the escape of tumor cells from the tumor to the blood, and they flow down downstream to the next tissue um, where they pass back into that tissue from the bloodstream to start the new tumor. 
So there's a lot of changes that have to occur. Uh, at that point, when they're in the bloodstream, are there no uh, immune responses that can detect a foreign... I guess they're not technically foreign because they developed from a person's own tissues. Uh, cell tissue. Yeah. So they're not... The immune system at that point, while they're in the blood, doesn't see them as yeah. foreign bodies. Yeah, that's one of the reasons that it's coming from self, mm -hmm. um, but also because of the immune evasion capabilities of cancer cells, they escape immune detection. Is it known when they're most vulnerable to detection? At which stage of development, uh, proliferation, and, and, and metastasis that they're most susceptible to intervention? Um, that's a that's a hard question to answer. I don't know the answer to that, but my guess would be is that the point at which they express the most markers, okay. the most cancer-associated markers, mm -hmm. and generally these are cell surface proteins that they look for. Um, so this the point in time at which the cancer cell expresses the majority of these is the time that um, it's easy, more, most easily diagnosed but it's also the time where you can take advantage of that if you have uh, marker targeting therapeutics as well. To get into another um, hallmark that I wanted to discuss was the polymorphic microbiomes. Yeah. And so could you elaborate a little more on that for us as to what exactly that means? How so, does it work exactly? Um, there's, so the microbiome is the collection of um, bacteria that we have in our bodies. And there's various collections of bacteria. There's uh, the bacteria in our gut, and that's made up of a series of species of bacteria. But there's also um, a tumor microbiome. So tumors have their own collection of bacteria, and those are of certain species. And uh, this can differ uh, between individuals in a population and what they found is that the microbiome can have a profound effect on the cancer phenotype that is shown by individuals. So um, you have cancer protective microbiomes, uh, microbiomes that are not associated with cancer and that actually protect the individual from cancerous effects. And then there's tumor promoting microbiomes. So this is made up of species of bacteria that tend to secrete factors that are tumor promoting. Now, are these bacteria present uh, before cancer has developed in the person's body or does, it, does that bacteria start to uh, become a resident, let's say, as the tumor is progressing? Um, it could be both. Um, and this is mainly uh, in terms of, say, colon cancer, right, where it has a very close association with the microbiome of our gut, mm -hmm. right? Uh, you can take a sample of the microbiome of an individual, and based on the species, uh, you could predict whether... Um, that patient may have a particular type of, of cancer. So they found that microbiomes change not only as we age, 
right? But also with disease states. So the species and the prevalence of each of those species of bacteria can be altered with disease states in individuals, such that with a stool sample, um, you can characterize the species and the abundance of each species and make predictions about certain disease states mm -hmm. or uh, it would suggest that the patients would have particular types of disease because those microbiomes are found in the disease state and so there is a cancer microbiome for instance there's cancer um, promoting microbiomes and there's also cancer preventing microbiomes and for the cancer preventing microbiomes how is it possible to, if it is possible to enrich their presence in order to have an innate defense uh, just on the bacterial scale? Yeah, and that's that's where um, the probiotics, I guess, come in. Um, uh, I think more and more studies are coming out suggesting that the microbiome is almost a tissue in itself and it can be a good indication of whether cancer is present or not. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, then there is a, a hallmark that describes senescent cells. Mm -hmm. So is that the idea that tumor cells are capable of preventing the, the pathways that lead them to becoming senescent? Um, yes, they have certain, certain abilities that, um, are surpassing normal cells in terms of trying to remain immortal. Mm-hmm. I guess you could say for the cancer cell. Um, we, I talked about the Hayflick limit, right? Uh, that cells reach a certain point where they age and can no longer divide uh, beyond that. And past that, they either dif differentiate and beyond that, they end up dying, usually by apoptosis. Cancer cells um, prolong their lifespan by doing things that uh, promote um, or decrease cellular aging. Uh, one feature is that they have overactive telomerases. Mm -hmm. So telomeres are the ends of our chromosomes. And as we age, these get shorter and shorter. And that causes problems eventually with the replication of those chromosomes because they're too short to be replicated. And so that's when you start to see cell senescence. That's where the Hayflick limit is eventually reached. Um, cancer cells have overactive telomerases that keep lengthening the telomeres and keep it in a very young state. So there's, there's a number of um, theories as to why all cells age. And one of them has to do with the length of telomeres or the length of the end of chromosomes um, and how they shorten with age. Mm -hmm. So there's the telomere um, uh, theory of why all things age. But the other thing too is that cancer cells have very high levels of what are called reactive oxygen species as well. And uh, these are species that are made from oxygen that's taken into cells, and they can cause damage to various types of macromolecules like lipids, like proteins, like DNA. 
And this is sometimes how mutations arise mm -hmm. in the cancer cell. To combat that, the cancer cell has very high levels of antioxidants. So antioxidants are the things that we take to combat reactive oxygen species in our daily lives, which are produced by our own metabolism. And we have natural antioxidants that are present within us, but we also have ones that we take in from diet. Things like vitamin C and, and vitamin E are great antioxidants. The cancer cell has high reactive oxygen species, but to compensate, it has also high uh, levels of antioxidants. And this um, prevention of oxidative damage to DNA, their proteins, is maybe one reason why they can outlive uh, or live longer than most other cells. Interesting. So, uh, so they actually benefit from uh, antioxidants? Yeah. Huh. Because they have higher levels, they have to compensate. Mm -hmm. And um, there's been previous suggestion that if you can tip that balance somehow, either give them a little bit more oxidative stress or somehow dam dampen their antioxidant defense, that you would tip the balance towards um, cell death as opposed to cell immortality. Could you do it the other way around by giving more antioxidants? Um, I guess it's possible, but um, like I say, the tumor microenvironment and the cancer itself itself has very high amounts of these reactive oxygen species. Mm -hmm. So if you provided more antioxidants, that might even provide them a bigger benefit in terms of their immortality. Interesting. Okay. Many of them are intertwined, mm -hmm. and so you'll have crossover of the hallmarks of cancer, um, all 14 of them, um, with each other. Yeah. So it's very hard to talk about one without also talking about the others because yeah. there is so much crossover between the hallmarks. That's right, yeah. So these key features of cancer um, are, are features that they've noticed that most cancer cells take advantage of mm -hmm. in order to survive, in order to bypass the immune system, and to um, keep growing, to become a tumor, and to spread to other parts in the, in the body. Also to uh, evade treatment. So uh, many of the treatments try to target cancer markers and you have a, a cell that's continuously growing, um, also possibly continuously changing due to an accumulation of mutations um, that may be able to bypass a lot of these. So it's a very difficult disease to treat because of multiple different causes of why a cell becomes cancerous, but also the markers <clears throat> there still needs to be a lot of research done on the, the key markers that will make a difference in terms of targeting them for therapeutics mm -hmm. in the future. Um, one thing that's a little bit off topic that it just kind of popped into my mind that I wanted to ask you about um, in regards to oxidative damage as it relates to aging. So for one of the main discussed subjects around aging is oxidative damage as a cause of reactive oxygen species being one of them um, is it possible to let's say slow down aging by preventing the damage caused by ROSs 
Um, there's a theory on that out there. Mm -hmm. uh, it's called the oxidative stress theory of, of aging. And they've done some interesting studies in the past where they've looked at um, a single protein and they've looked at um, damage to this protein over an organism's entire lifespan. And they've, they've looked at this protein and, and the protein is cytochrome C. It's a very common protein in all cells of many organisms. Um, but they look at it over the entire lifespan and uh, for to, to put the lifespan of a fruit fly in, at the same as a human, they, they set birth as zero and death at 100%. And they looked at uh, the damage to this one protein by reactive oxygen species over the entire lifespan of the organism. And um, this is the formation of something called carbonyl groups on proteins, which only show up during oxidative stress. Mm -hmm. So they looked at the number of carbonyl groups over the lifespan of a fruit fly and a human put to the same scale. And they found some interesting results in that um, uh, all the way up to 50% of an organism's lifetime, there's no damage to cytochrome C. But once you reach the 50% mark, there's a linear increase in the number of carbonyl groups generated on this particular protein. So you could almost use this protein as a molecular clock of aging. And that evidence like this has given rise to the free, it's called the free radical theory of aging. Um, reactive oxygen species are free radicals. They have free electrons that try to pull off electrons off of other things. And that's what causes damage to our macromolecules. Um, so there's a theory there that the reason why all things are aging is that we're all subject to this damage over time. Um, it's a little bit more complex than that. There could be other theories as to why things age. One of them is the telomerase theory or the telomere shortening theory. So there's a number of different theories of aging out there. Um, the fact that, you know, we may be aging due to oxidative stress is just one of those right. theories. There's many others out there that um, suggest other things cause cell aging over time in all organisms. Interesting. Yeah, I just wanted to, uh, to poke at that idea because I found it uh, interesting when you brought it up. And essentially a cancer cell is a non-aging cell. Right, yeah, because it's, it can keep proliferating until it, it's really limited by, uh, for its life cycle by the host life cycle. Yeah. Dr. Wilmore, thank you very much for, uh, for oh, doing this, this second part here. And thank you again for, for the second me. episode. Of course, it's anytime. It's my pleasure. Yeah, the pleasure's all mine. Uh, thank you for coming on, and I wish you all the best in your work. Thanks for listening, everyone. Mm -hmm.